Hi there, I'm your host and animation student at Sheridan College, Terry Ibell, and welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is going to share his experience on how to go from basically being born to ending up with your own show and all the steps in between. And his name is Brett Jubinville, and he is the creator of Super Science Friends. And that's a show about a bunch of superpower-wielding scientists like Albert Einstein and Mary Curie, who traveled through, through time to fight Nazis and the Pope and a whole bunch of other shenanigans. And Super Science Friends, if you haven't seen it, is currently airing on Cartoon Hangover in the US and YouTube internationally. And interestingly enough, even though he's an amazing animator, Brett never actually graduated from his animation program at St. Clair College. But he's a really experienced guy, and so I'm so happy that he's with us today. And, you know, when he's not creating awesome shows, you can find him playing video games or axe throwing and a whole bunch of other things. Now, before we dive in, this episode is sponsored by the awesome team at StartAStudio.com. StartAStudio is a new online school focused on the business side of animation. They have both free and paid courses, an online community, and downloads to help you succeed in your animation career and build your own cool, creative, and viable animation studio. All the content is written and presented by experienced animator and studio founder John Draper. And you can use the unique discount code AIP as an animation industry podcast in the checkout to save 20% on their popular pro studio startup course. So whether you're looking to up your freelance game or plan and launch your own animation company, check out startastudio.com. Now let's jump into the chat. So Brett, thank you so much for being here today. How are you doing? Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm doing good. I'm a little tired, but uh, otherwise pretty good. Good. I mean, we could all use more sleep these days. Um, so I'll, let's just kick this off. I thought I'd start by just asking you, you know, what kind of stuff did you grow up watching that got you interested about getting into the animation industry in the first place? Cool. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I think um, I, I've thought a lot about like the cartoons that that inspired me, and uh, I'd have to say the big ones were the early '90s X-Men cartoon which no surprise that we end up doing a superhero thing um and probably batman after they redesigned him so in the 90s there was there was batman the animated series and then they redesigned him i think um i can't remember his name who who did the redesigns but they were they were much more sleek and stylized after the fact um so how did you actually get into the industry yourself so I know you went to, to college. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that experience of deciding to go to college and then, you know, not graduating. <laughs> <laughs> the not graduating was easy. That's the easiest part of the whole thing. Uh, graduating is the hard part. Yeah. Uh, I, so I decided to, um, where should I start? Well, when I was in high school, my dad retired. And he had worked at a at a factory at, at Ford Automotive for 32 years. And I remember he was he was at the time he was teaching me to drive. And he said after retiring very nonchalantly, and I don't think he meant to be profound, but he said that it felt like he had just lived the same day over and over again for the last 32 years. Which, if you think about it, if you're working a factory job, that's pretty much what you do: is you get up, you go to work, you do the same thing. Then you come home, you eat dinner, you go to bed, and then repeat, rinse and repeat for, you know, three decades. Uh, and even though he wasn't trying to be profound, it, it kind of had a, a profound impact on me. Um, and I realized that at that moment, I, I was kind of drowning in a lot of classes that I was not prepared for, a lot of sciences and maths and just things that that um, was a little too much. And 
I decided then I was like, okay, enough of that. I'm going to just do art classes and classes that I want to go to and like debate classes and creative writing and, and these things that kind of made me happy. And I'm going to leave the other stuff by the, by the wayside. And so that's how I treated the rest of high school. And then when I, when I left high school, I still had that same mentality of, I just don't want to do that thing that that's reliving the same day thing. So I wanted to do something artistic. Obviously I wanted to, be something that was a bit of a craft. Uh, so fine art was was not that crime fine art isn't a craft, but it's more of a it's more artistic as opposed to craftsmanship. So I wanted to do something that was an actual like a job job. And uh, there aren't many other alternatives other than animation. Actually, there's there's illustration, but even then that was kind of waning a little bit as a, as a viable um, career. And uh, so animation was it as by by default. Yeah, and then so you got into school, and then what happened? That uh, you know, while you were there, you decided you didn't think graduating was going to be what you wanted to do. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't so much that. It was just a matter of circumstance. So by the time I was in my third year, it was a three-year program. Um, I was already working. I was doing working at a couple web design places, and I was uh, chauffeuring to to pay for school. And so there was a lot going on. I was pretty much getting home at like five, six in the morning from my chauffeur job and then working uh, throughout the day at the web design places and then trying to get to school. So at a certain point, just something had to give. And I felt like, well, I'm already working, so maybe I don't have to go to these classes. Um, so I didn't drop out. I just flunked because I stopped going to, to certain classes that I just didn't want to go to anymore. Same thing with high school, actually. I, I, now that I say it out loud, I'm repeating the same pattern over and over. And over. Oh, no, for 30 years. Eventually, you'll say the same thing. <laughs> Too bad. Um, yeah, uh, actually, so you, you mentioned when we were chatting leading up to this uh, talk, you know, you were working for some web design firms, and then you went on to pitch a show in the States. And uh, it was actually pretty surprising how you know everything went wrong and then ended up kind of right. I'm wondering if you could just go through that experience. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so the, the way I got to the U.S. Uh, was that I had when I when I came out of school, I had um, put all my artwork onto this website, which was a an illustrator's kind of website. In the end, I did uh, coming out of animation. I was leaning more towards illustration. Um, and so I put it up on this website trying to get some attention. And I got an email out of the blue from a woman who worked at the Jim Henson Company. And she said, hey, I saw your stuff, really liked it. If you're ever in LA, come on by and pitch 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 an idea, which I took as like a genuine, uh, honest to goodness like invitation. Like you should come to LA right now. <laughs> Book your flight tomorrow. <laughs> Book your flight. So I I, I had no money. Uh, so I, I couldn't book my flight tomorrow, but I did kind of have a few odd jobs here and there, like CD covers for local bands and stuff like that, that I could scrape together some money for. And so I did those jobs really quick. And then I I briefly moved to Toronto where I slept on my brother's couch for a few weeks. Well, I did like another job in Toronto and then flew out to Vancouver where I stayed with my sister for like a month. Uh, and eventually I made my way to Los Angeles. And I showed up at the Jim Henson Company and I kind of knocked on the door and I said, I'm here. <laughs> and uh, she she knew who I was. I had emailed her just as I arrived. And she basically told me like, oh, well, it's great that you're here, but we're going out of town and you need we'll, we'll, we'll see you when we get back. We'll be back in two weeks. Oh, my gosh. 
And again, like money was tight. So I did not have two weeks worth of uh, hotel money just kind of rattling around in my pocket. So um, I went back to the airport because I did have my return flight. So one smart thing I did do. So I went back to the airport and that's where I would sleep um, for most of the time. And then I would transit back into the city and then uh, when I wanted to go downtown. But the one thing that was great about it was even though she left me and she said, okay, we'll be back in two weeks, is she wrote down, she very quickly jotted down on this piece of paper names and phone numbers. There was about 10 or 12 phone numbers. And she just said, here, call these people. Tell them I sent you. And uh, so I called them and they were all like executives of, of Warner Brothers or Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network or just all these different places, Disney Channel. And because she was so nice and because I think she was, you know, had a really good reputation, I would call these people and I'd be like, so-and-so told me to just give you a call. And they said, oh, yeah, sure. Come on down. Come on over. And not a single person turned me away. Not one. Uh, which, which I think speaks to her more than it does to me. Um, and, yeah, so I got to spend the days, the, the nights sleeping in the hotel or sorry, the nights sleeping in the uh, in the airport and the days um touring these these great production facilities and just getting shown around and seeing what is actually a studio looks like because we didn't have an internship program at our at our school so this was my first foray into like seeing an actual animation studio i can't imagine uh sleeping in a in an airport overnight every night that doesn't sound like uh something i would enjoy doing at all <laughs> they don't um, turn the lights off it's kind of like a hospital that way. And the the but the good thing was at the time, if a security guy came by, you could just go like, ah, I'm waiting for my flight because I did have my ticket, and they'd leave you alone. But I don't think you could get away with that today. I think they're they've wise to it. Um, yeah. Okay. So I did want to talk a little bit more about Super Science Friends. Um, I'm wondering maybe you can kind of give like an overview of how you view the show, and then how did that go from being you know an idea in your head to actually becoming a fully produced show with a team behind it. Yeah. Um, when you say like my view on the show, do you mean like what yeah, I'm you know, there's there's like the Wikipedia version, you know, like a bunch of uh, historical figure scientists with superpowers <clears throat> traveling through time, headed up by Winston Churchill. You know, but how do you how do you picture it in your head? Like, what is the what's the driving force, main idea behind it? Um, I mean, it's the way i came up with it was i was i was playing fallout new vegas and there was a character that looked a lot like the space ghoul i mean if you put them side by side you arguably i ripped off fallout new vegas for this character but uh that's how i came up with it was i drew that character whenever i come up with a show idea typically i'll, I'll it'll come from a sketch so i'll just be sketching random stuff and then i'll start thinking as i'm drawing like oh interesting wonder what kind of world that person lives in and so i I, I did that same thing with this one where I came up with that design and then I really liked it and I just kind of couldn't sleep that night and I stayed up figuring out the world that it could inhabit for this character to actually exist. Um, for for me, like what, what the show means to me right now is, is uh, one, it's the first show that I actually have written uh like like the show to me is is the experience of me learning how to make a show so uh if you if you go back and you look at episode one versus say episode five and certainly episode six which hopefully will be out soon um there is a there is 
an obvious visual learning curve that you can see, not only in the visual style and the way that we frame our shots and the way that we draw the characters, but also just in the way that we tell the story. Like in the first one, we were with the super science friends the whole time. There was very little cutaway to someone else. Whereas now we have this A and B plot where we show the bad guys and we kind of show what they're doing and then we cut back and we cut back and forth. And that, that to me is just like us getting better at writing and getting better at making the show. So how did how did it go from you know you staying up late at night drawing this character to actually having a team behind it and producing the first episode? Like you obviously had to sell people on this and then find resources and all that other stuff. So maybe you can just go through that a little bit. Sure. Um, my at the time I had started Tin Man already with my partner Morgan. So she that night that I had come up with the idea, she was at a conference called Kid Screen, which used to be held in New York. And she was there to pitch some kids shows that we had come up with uh, to like Nickelodeon Cartoon Network. And so because I was up all night and I was feverish about this new idea that I that I just birthed into the world, uh, I sent her the one sheet that I had cobbled together and I said, throw that other crap in the garbage. This is the show. (laughs) So like this is as she's heading into a into a pitch with the Cartoon Network. And so she uh, goes, "Uh, okay," and then quickly like reads the thing and doesn't really understand what the hell she's reading because it was, you know, all cobbled together. And then she pitches it and without surprise, it goes completely horribly and they, they don't really care for it. And they said it's too soon for Nazis and a bunch of other things. Um, so it didn't go well. The, the other shows that I, that we, that we went in there with my, like they had a chance and they had a chance, but we, we completely just k- kiboshed that. Um, so after that dismal affair, it uh, it kind of just sat on the shelf for a while, and it sat in our dev folder collecting dust with all our other kind of half-baked ideas. And um, a couple years later, Kickstarter started to become a thing. And it was intriguing because we were a small studio and this kind of crowdsourced, you know, alternative revenue stream thing. Uh, we were like, oh, we should try that out. And we looked through all the properties that we like all the show ideas that we'd come up with of something that we could try and kickstart. And this one just kind of jumped out as something that would probably be able to find some fans. It's very kind of science-based and that was, you know, starting to pick up and get popular with guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, being interviewed on the daily show and things like that. So we figured that might be worth a shot. And uh, so we did a Kickstarter and thankfully it was successful. And that, that's how we started doing it. And then after that, the Kickstarter, I should clarify, is a terrible way to raise money. It's it it we we raised you know thirty thousand dollars, but because we way overpromised on all the rewards, uh, and because shipping, we had no idea what shipping costs, and it costs a lot. Uh, all the money went towards that, so we were very out of pocket for the episode. But um, the way we paid for it then is the same way we pay for it now, more or less, which is we do work for clients. And then we take the revenue from that and we work on something that we want to work on. Um, we have Patreon and some other things now that that help. But uh, for the most part, it's still just like do some do some legit work and then take the money from that and do some fun stuff. Do you so like the last I checked on your YouTube channel, at least you have almost, you know, five million views, over 100,000 subscribers to the show and it's growing. Do you see uh, revenue streams coming in specifically for this show other than Patreon or is it? You're going to continue to this is like your creative project on the side of your studio work there's a little bit it's it's 
the YouTube ad revenue isn't much. Like it's probably the most we've ever made is maybe a few hundred dollars a month. Um, and that's probably been in a month where we released an episode, which cost, you know, several tens of thousands of dollars to produce. Um, so there isn't uh, so much of a future on YouTube just from the YouTube ad revenue. Not that it doesn't help. Uh, certainly every little bit helps. Patreon, I could see as a real as a real force to pay for it. I've seen some very successful Patreons. I'm I'm very bad at promoting the stuff and and pushing that because I don't want to ram it down people's throats. But I, I have seen other YouTube channels and other kind of creators where they, they're very good about it, but they do mention it a lot of just like, hey, and if you like what I do, then support us on Patreon. Right. Um, and I feel like if I were to kind of ramp it up that way, then there might be something there. But uh, for now, it, it is this thing that we're doing that we know is good like we know people like it and and we know that it's got something so it will find a home i think beyond just being on youtube um it's just a matter of of when and who and how yeah so um it sounds like kind of you discovered that there was an audience for this rather than like uh, doing it the opposite way, like thinking what an audience would want and then creating something for them. Yeah. Going forward as your audience grows, like what do you think are the main reasons you get new viewers and people latch onto the show? Um, is it is it the idea itself? Is it the characters? Is it the humor? Is it the style? Like what is wh when you finish an episode, you're like, oh, people are going to love this because. That's a really good question. Um... I don't, I, I've been wrong about the audience since the very beginning. Like I, I figured uh, if, if I thought anything, I thought like, okay, we're going to make this, it's going to tap into this kind of like, you know, uh, nerdy pop culture that seems to be getting big in like English speaking countries like the US, Canada, UK, etc. And it ended up being Germany was really big on the Kickstarter. That was like our number one supporter was Germany. And then after that, our biggest fans came from Russia and Latin America. And there was nothing in English speaking. Yeah, in English none of those countries speak English. <laughs> like, what the hell? And and now we've we've tapped into the US market a little bit. Like I can look through the 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 al the stuff on the analytics on YouTube and I can see that the US is now like slightly our number one uh, viewership. But I would argue that the, the mega fans, the people that do cosplay, that do fan art, that attend the live streams, that just like want to want to be part of the, the kind of community are people out of Russia mainly. And, and, and it's not the first time I've heard that. There is something about that area of the world where maybe it's been underserved for a long time or something, but they get really passionate about anything that they are watching uh, and, or that they get into. Well, when you figure that out and capitalize on it, uh, who knows <laughs> where it'll go. Um, so my next question is kind of around, so you're working at a creative agency with a whole bunch of creative professionals. And, you know, everyone has their own ideas of what like they'd like to produce creatively. And, of course, you have, like, client work. How did you or how do you continually align a team around kind of idea that, that you spearheaded that was kind of your thing? You know, and somebody might want to work on their own creative work rather than, a different idea like how do you get everybody's sense of humor and style and etc all in one show so that everybody can feel like it's part of theirs and and like make it the best they can be yeah that's a good question it, it's something where well the first thing is that uh, everything we work on is kind of for the company so it's there it's not 
like a collective where people are bringing different aspects of it. It's it's very much a traditional studio where it's like we hired animators and now they animate our, the things we want them to animate. Um, so there, I don't know if there is a ton of opportunity for someone who's here to work on their own show. Um, so, the, you know, long story short, it's kind of they'll work on whatever I tell them to work on. But <laughs> but, but I guess it's the difference between like this is my job and also like I'm excited to work yeah. on this fun idea, right? Yeah, totally. There, there's, there is something about working on a show that you think is cool. I remember I, I worked on a show called Ugly Americans a few years ago. Or more than a few years ago now, but back in 2011, and there was something about knowing like that your friends are were gonna watch this because it was on after South Park or whatever. Um, so I think that's a big driver is that the people that work on it actually do like the show and they like the comedy of it. Um, a lot of the creative of the show is still it's it's still the same small group of people that worked on episode one. So it's myself. Um, a guy named Kevin Williams who works with us who has written several episodes and he's really like the science force behind the show. Like he looks into, um, as I said, like I almost flunked those science classes mm -hmm. in high school, but he, he kind of lives and breathes that stuff. So he does a lot of the research and then Laurel Dalgleish does, has done all our boards for the main episodes since the very first one. And that brings a certain charm and a certain, um, humor to it as well as just, she draws real funny so that that helps and and it's it's part of the reason why we've taken so long to do the episodes we've done is because it's still very reliant on this core group i should mention uh, larissa melnick as well she does the she's been our lead animator since about episode two and she's she's really taken it beyond what i could do and fleshed out the you know all the character libraries and all the hand poses and stuff that i didn't bother doing i was just like yeah here's what a hand looks like and now she can tell you what it looks like from every angle and, and uh, has been great with the rest of the crew for that um so maybe talking a little bit more about the team i know you're fairly small tin man studio is fairly small compared to one like the bigger studios so when it comes to you know building a team, who, what kind of animators or designers or storyboard artists are you looking for? Are you looking for people that are very specialized, or are you looking for people that can have a very general experience and can work on different areas as needed? Generalists, um, almost exclusively, uh, and that that comes from us being very small at the, at the early days where it was just Morgan and myself, and so we needed someone. If we were going to bring someone in, let's say we had a commercial that was eight weeks. Um, there might be four days of design work in that eight weeks. So for us to hire just a designer to come in for four days, and then we have to find an animator or a storyboard artist to board those designs, and then an animator to animate that storyboard artist design, it's, it just seemed like too much work. So we would look for someone who could do all three. Uh, and then we kept that mentality going as we grew. And so well, now we're big enough where there, there are some people that just gravitate more to design or gravitate more to boards. Uh, typically everyone is still kind of hands on deck for whatever we need done. So if I think almost everyone here can animate. So if we need to crank out a bunch of animation for something, then we do that. And if we, if the animation work is kind of done and we just need to focus on boards, then we do that. So when you're looking for uh, somebody new to join your team, is that kind of one of the top qualities you look for? Or is there something else that helps somebody stand out from the rest of the crowd? It's, it's really um, being able to draw, being good in, in various aspects, uh, being a good mimic is important. 
uh, it's great if you have your own style and it's great if you have your own work, but you know, the art of animation is being able to drop into a studio, be handed kind of the style guide and then adapt to that. So that's important. Uh, one of the main things I would say that's really important for us is just being able to fit in with the kind of vibe that we've got here, which is, um, it's a very relaxed environment. Everybody works very hard, but it's still very much like they come in, they're quiet, uh, nobody really bothers anyone, they put on their headphones, they get to work. And um, so when I'm interviewing someone, even if they're the greatest artist I've ever met in my entire life, if they come in and I'm talking to them and I feel like they're going to kind of wreck that vibe, then yeah. we don't work with them. So uh, be quiet. Don't bother anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like it, it's this thing of like I remember when when Google announced like their big open office space that they did that they kind of pioneered and then everyone followed suit. And I remember looking at that and going like, my God, like like people bother other people. That is just the, the fact of life. Uh, and when you put enough people in a room, if, so if you're putting 500 people in a giant room, it's just going to be like this simmering environment of irritation all the time. And so at our studio, we have a lot of like little rooms. So typically there's no more than like five or six people in a room, maybe, maybe seven or eight at the most. Um, and that's purposefully done just so it's like, cause if, you know, personalities can clash and, and we just try and keep the drama low if we can sense um so last thing i want to talk about is uh because i know you have some experience in this is how to craft uh you know a pitch and how that is changing especially with you know netflix approving a huge amount of animated content um can you go into that and how it's changing and and what your experience is with that sure um i've only ever gotten one pitch uh, aside from commercials, which I've pitched, uh, I've only ever gotten one pitch that actually went through, and that was a pitch for a show called Ramblers that got picked up by Nickelodeon for their shorts program. So we did get to make a pilot with Nickelodeon for that, which was great. Um, but I've never like gotten a show onto uh, you know Fox or something like that. So you may want to ask Seth MacFarlane. However, all you got is me right now. So. From what I understand, what the way it used to be is each channel, each network would have a, an audience and they would cater to that audience. So, you know, if you go to the sci-fi, uh, they would cater to like sci-fi fans. And if you went to comedy, it would be comedy fans. The way it's changing now with like Amazon and Netflix, uh, and, and the only reason I know this is I've attended some talks where people from Netflix have come and spoken, is that you don't go to them and ask what they're looking for, which is usually what was the first thing. If you were, went to, like, say, CBC to pitch a kid's show, you'd say, yeah, what are you looking for? And they'd say, well, we're looking for uh, boys 8 to 12 adventure show where it's got comedy and it's got blah, 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 this and that. And that is kind of disappearing. And so what Netflix wants is they just say, we want everything. So they're greenlighting, like, 300 things a year. So there is no audience for them. Like everybody's the audience for Netflix. And so what they want you to do is they want you to show up with a script at the least already worked out. They want to see your vision for the show because they have no interest in buying your show and then producing it for you. They want to just cut a check and have you produce the show. Um, 
Whereas if you were to say back in the day, pitch a show to like Nelvana, what they what they would most likely do is they would pay you for the show, say thank you very much, and send you on your way. Because having you involved is um, kind of you know just like I talked about earlier, it kind of creates drama. It's like why why have the creator involved when they're going to have their own ideas and their own way of wanting to do things when you can just you know take the show and very cleanly produce it on your own without someone who's overly emotionally attached. Thanks. Netflix does the opposite, where they want the creator involved. They want the guy who's written that script in the room, um, because those are the people that have the passion and come with the ideas, and and they want to if they believe in the person and they believe in the person and that they they feel their passion for that project is is genuine. Then I think they they're willing to take a risk and and give some money towards it. So if you want to pitch to Netflix, you have to be somebody who not only uh, wrote the script, but also knows how to produce it. Like you have to know animators and production people and storyboard artists. Or uh, do they say, you know, here's a bunch of resources, go to a studio that's going to produce this show for you. Or do they just say, like, here's a bunch of resources, figure it out on your own. I've never been in the room with them, so I can't genuinely answer that. But... Uh, I would imagine that if they like you enough and they like your idea enough, they will recommend, you know, uh, teaming up with somebody. But knowing that stuff does not hurt. Like if you're able to if you're able to take it and run with it, then I think that's a benefit to everyone. Sure. Um, so maybe just talking about pitching and, you know, I'm a student and people listening to this podcast, maybe beginners or students themselves, what advice can you give somebody who's more or less anxious to pitch or doesn't know where to start to conceptualize their idea? I mean, uh, for you, super science friends, you know, you stayed up all night and you were already going to a pitch the next day anyway, so you kind of knew what to prepare. Um, what kind of advice can you give somebody who, who would like to pitch but doesn't really know where to start? <laughs> that's a whole other topic i guess <laughs> it, i well, i think it's something that uh like there's so many ways to skin a cat in this regard the the story i heard was that um like take adventure time for example that was pitched as part of the shorts program at nickelodeon so they put a call out for ideas and then people submitted ideas probably you know nowadays they would submit it over the web with drawings and you know kind of a one sheet so it's what your idea is some episode synopses some character designs and then they passed on it and then uh it went over to Penn ward found fred siebert um from frederator pitched it to him he passed on it and luckily some of his guys talked some sense into him and then he said okay well let's do it and then they did it and they were able to sell it to cartoon network so that's that's one where they actually produced a short at one studio and then it took it to another one from what i've heard from um about the spongebob pitch he walked in with like a 200 page book and he was like here's the show here's all the rotations here's all the characters here's all the scripts here's all the here's everything um and then there are other places that don't want that at all like they just want to come in they want to hear the log line they want to hear that nugget that hook and then start to flesh it out and take a little bit of ownership on it themselves. The one thing I can say, like having pitched a few times, uh, is that the more involved the person you're pitching to is, the better it goes. So if they start, if you can get them excited and they start, you know, putting in their own ideas, oh, and then maybe this guy does this, and then it's, you know, it turns out that he's his brother, then you're good. And so what you want to do is if that rally starts to happen, 
you don't want to shut it down. You don't want to say like, no, he's not his brother. He's he's the cousin. You just kind of that's that. Those are details that can get worked out later. So you just kind of want to be there. You want to you want to present yourself as someone who this person wouldn't mind working with for the next two or three years. You know. Gotcha. So it sounds like step one is research where you're going to pitch to to figure out what they they want to see. And then if you get in front of them, kind of go with the flow, kind of get them involved, ramp up the excitement and show that you're an open, flexible person who's fun to work with. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to just take whatever suggestion they have and then say like, oh, yeah, we can totally do that. Oh, you want to make him a girl? OK, yeah, we'll do that because um, they do want you to be the force of it, but you don't want to shut them down either. And I would argue that that doing the research is very important, um, not only for pitching a show, but for applying for a job. So if you if if you're going to apply to, um, let's say, Nelvana for a preschool show like Babar season 18, then don't put a demo reel together that only shows your, you know, your adults blood and guts animation um and it, it's not hard to like put together some specific stuff so you can have your general demo reel in your general portfolio but throw in a few special ones so if you know you're going to go to cartoon network then draw some cartoon network looking stuff because more often than not if you're applying for like a design position on an existing show they don't care that, yeah, you can learn it or there's talent here and we just need to nurture it out of them. What they want to see is they want to open that portfolio and see their show and go like, yep, this guy's got it. Hire him or her. That makes um, sense. So it, and and like I said, it, maybe you'd spend a couple of days putting together something specific for them. And, and I think that two day investment can go a, a really long way. Yeah. Um, so just wrapping up, any final thoughts for students like myself or those who are just studying in general who are just beginning their careers in the animation industry, coming from a seasoned professional as yourself? Yeah, I've got two pieces of advice that I always give to students. One is, uh, if you haven't yet, get a credit card, especially <laughs> if you're planning to freelance, because believe it or not, um, banks are not anxious to give credit cards to unemployed recent grads, but they're very anxious to give credit cards to current students. And um, having a credit rating can mean like, like I didn't have it when I came out of school and I couldn't even get an apartment. It's like things like that are really tricky, especially if you want to freelance. Um, my second piece of advice is be as kind and nice to your fellow classmates as you can, because as good as your resume is and as good as your portfolio is, it's usually a recommend from one of them that will get you your first jobs in the industry. Um, at least for us, when, when we're looking for someone new, the first person I go to talk to is the animators that I'm already working with. And I say, hey, guys, we're looking for this type of person. Do you know anyone? And then they'll recommend if they know someone who's just freed up from a gig somewhere or something. It's That's where I get my recommends from. I, I We really don't um, do like job postings all that often. So it's Makes for sense. us. So Get a credit card and be nice. I love it. <laughs> uh, great. Well, thank you so much, Brett. It's been a real privilege to have you on this podcast today. Thanks. The, the pleasure is all mine. Great. And uh, just before we leave, I want to share some ways you can follow Brett's work on Super Science Friends. He's got supersciencefriends.com, which is a website dedicated to everything about the show. They even have a fun little beat em up side scroller game, some songs, and other tidbits. You can find them on YouTube at youtube.com/slash supersciencefriends. Join their 100,000 subscribers. 
They have Instagram, so instagram.com slash friends, where you can see behind the scenes and some fan art. And then Brett mentioned the Patreon and just go to www.patreon.com slash friends, and you can find them there to support them there. So, all right, thanks for tuning in, everyone. And a really big thank you again to you, Brett Jubinville, and be sure to check out our next episode. Okay, bye. <laughs>